Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. Science fiction can often help us understand real politic in the real world. So is Tyrion Lannister of Game of Thrones a realist or a liberal? And what would Mr Spock have to say about rational choice theory? What did Stanley Kubrick read to create Dr Strangelove? Stephen Dyson is the author of the book Otherworldly Politics, The International Relations of Star Trek, Game of Thrones and Battlestar Galactica. He's also the Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Connecticut. In this interview with Heath Brown, which was originally made for the New Books Network, he takes on these questions with an enjoyable exploration for how the classic theories of international relations have been played out on our television and movie screens. And the book is about international relations, and I think even those of us who, who don't study international relations deeply know about this classic divide between the realists and the liberals. Um, you look to the fictional world of Game of Thrones to help explain this. So who are the realists and who are the liberals in the world of Westeros? So I think the, the whole first season of, of Game of Thrones is really a, an excellent illustration of this this old liberal and realist divide. The liberals are the idealists, of course, being uh, people who, are, who very much believe that, that politics should be about values and should be about ethics and that human, human beings and human nature is, is fundamentally good. And the way that you promote peace in the world and peace is achievable is that you act in accordance with your values and you trust other people. Uh, and I think they were represented, especially in the first season and actually in later seasons, by the Starks in, in Game of Thrones, these guardians of the North, People like uh, uh, Ned Stark, who was a, an extremely stubborn individual, an extremely moralistic individual, someone who always wanted to do the, the right thing, someone who was, as many uh, liberals are, many idealists are, pretty bad at the down and dirty work of politics. In Game of Thrones, Ned is, is doing well up in the north. You know, he's, he's amongst his own people and he understands its politics and he's able to make a virtue of his, his idealism. Uh, and then the king comes to see him and the king is his old friend and the king says, I need you in the south. Well, southern politics is very different. Southern politics is the realm of realpolitik and it's the realm of the Stark's great antagonists, the Lannisters, uh, who I think, uh, you know, really represent the, the sort of realist uh, point of view. I want him dead. Mother and child both. And that fool Viserys as well. Is that plain enough for you? I want them both dead. You'll dishonor yourself forever if you do this. Honor? I've got seven kingdoms to rule. One king, seven kingdoms. Do you think honor keeps them in line? Do you think it's honor that's keeping the peace? It's fear. Fear and blood. Then we're no better than the Mad King. Ned very unwisely follows his friend down south. It's the right thing to do. He gave his word to the friend. He owes, he owes duty to, to his friend, the king. Um, and he meets a, a, a sticky end in the South because he's outmaneuvered by, by realists. And, and we can say, um, for those of you that, that haven't watched the show... Yes, yeah, spo uh, spoiler alert, by the way. <laughs> right. You, and you haven't yet been spoiled. Uh, this, is, this is not nearly the spoiler that, uh, that one might, might think. And, and, and you write in the book about Star Trek, Game of Thrones, Battlestar Galactic, and a, and a couple of others. You don't write about Star Wars, so there will be no Star Wars spoilers in this either. One of the central assumptions made by scholars in lots of field, fields uh, is the extent to which rationality is, is just an abstract idea or something that really drives decision making. And, and Trekkies have, the, have their own way 
to express this debate. So what is Dr. Spock's rationality and, and how is that show using uh, that idea to, to help explain this, this, this concept to a wider audience? Well, Mr. Spock's probably the, the, the greatest um, fictional representation of what is in danger in academic circles of being a pretty boring, bloodless theory, right? The theory of, of rational choice. And you try and explain this to students and their eyes glaze over. Um, but if you, can, if you can dramatize it in the figure of someone like Mr. Spock, then, then you can keep them interested. Um, and Spock on, on Star Trek was a, a Vulcan, uh, someone who was absolutely committed uh, to, to making decisions on, on, from a logical standpoint, from calculating the costs and the benefits. And I think the, the greatest representation of this, or the, the, the greatest instantiation of this, was in the, the great movie, the Wrath, the Wrath of Khan, which is my, my favorite movie. Um, and again, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen The Wrath of Khan, mm -hmm. <laughs> Spock applies his utilitarianism, his rationality uh, throughout the movie, really, to, to help his friend, James Kirk. And Kirk is the, the, the great embodiment of, of emotion and the great embodiment of, of feeling. And Spock is cool and Kirk is hot. And of course, when the two work together, that's when they can really be successful. And they are successful. They defeat Kirk's great nemesis, um, Khan. Uh, and it's Spock's rationality and Kirk's emotion works together to defeat Khan. But there's a huge cost. And Spock is faced with a decision uh, which involves him sacrificing himself so that, the, so that the ship can be saved and his friends can escape from Khan. And he makes that decision, or at least he, he expresses that decision in cold, logical terms. And he says, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Were I to invoke logic, logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. That's a, a perfect illustration of, of, of utilitarianism and of, and of rational choice and of the fact that if you follow, uh, if you make decisions purely on, rational, uh, on a rational calculus, sometimes that can lead you to paradoxical or uncomfortable places. Um, and this was the great story. This has been the great story of rational choice in political science that it can uncover surprising outcomes, surprising decisions, uh, or uh, and uncomfortable decisions. And Spock really does dramatize that uh, perfectly, I think. Now, now, given some of the recent Republican debates, some of the Cold War concerns that you write about in the book, particularly about nuclear war, see, just feel so much more real now than even just, I don't know, for myself a couple of weeks ago. And, and science fiction really grew up in that environment in the 1950s and 60s. And so uh, I was really intrigued by your writing about Dr. Strangelove. Um, which theories from international relations are played out in that movie? And uh, maybe you could talk just a little bit about how connected Stanley Kubrick was to, to actually some of the academic literature on the subject and how he incorporated into this, this fictional uh, movie that he made. Yeah, what was going on in the couple of decades after the Second World War is American political science was was developing as a discipline and it did so distinctively in the United States as opposed to, to Europe. In Europe it retained far more links to sort of the humanities and philosophy and sociology and so forth. In the United States political science became, well it became like rational actor theory, you know what we were just talking about and it became uh, imbued with or, or, or close to, closest to economics. Um, so that was one thing that was going on in, in political science at that point. Another thing that was going on was that political scientists were starting to work quite closely with the government. And so you had these, these think tanks that would bridge 
governments and would uh, an academia, uh, places like the Rand Corporation. And so these, these influences came together with what was going on in world politics, the development uh, of a Cold War, the development of nuclear weapons. Um, and there was a merging in, uh, between a, a school of political an uh, analysis that was, that was very rational and very sort of e uh, based on economics logic and the government needing to develop uh, a set of policies to deal with the Cold War with the Soviet Union and that would also deal with the fact that you had uh, the Soviet Union and the United States with increasingly large and sophisticated nuclear arsenals. Um, and so uh, some of the, the, the theories that were most applicable here were things like deterrence theory, rational deterrence theory, and what became known as the logic of mutually assured dis destruction, which is a totally rational, logical uh, concept, right, which is uh, the peace will be kept by the fact that I will be so scared of launching my nuclear weapons against you because I know if I do, you will launch your nuclear weapons against me. And so that mutual fear, that fear of mutually assured destruction will paradoxically enough uh, keep the peace between us. Um, and that was coming out of political science and all the influences uh, that I described. Uh, but it was really, if you think about it, a, 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 a sort of totally ludicrous scenario that you had these, these sort of great theories of death and these, these, these weapons of mass destruction that were supposed to keep the peace. And to people like Stanley Kubrick, who would read these academic theories and the calculations that would go into deterrence and mutually assured destruction, it seemed absurd. And that's where Dr. Strangelove came from. Uh, Kubrick had originally uh, intended to write um, a, a thriller. Dr. Strangelove was supposed to be a straight up thriller about a, a chain of events that would go wrong, leading to uh, a launch of nuclear weapons that of course would signal the end of life on Earth. Um, but he read, he read the academic theories on this stuff and he looked into what the government policy was and he thought, this is absurd. There is no way to shoot this straight up. You know, we, we've entered into the realm uh, of utter absurdity that is also absolutely terrifying. Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. And so because of the automated and irrevocable decision-making process, which rules out human meddling, the doomsday machine is terrifying. It's, it's simple to understand and completely credible and convincing. Gee, I wish we had one of them doomsday machines, don't And that was the, the provenance of, of Dr. Strangelove. It's a movie I show in, in class a lot because not only is it, you know, uh, deeply funny and deeply, uh, deeply satirical. It's also a great document of the historical times, but it also really gets you to think about the, these notions of deterrence and these notions of, uh, of rationality uh, in a very visceral way. Now, the, the one uh, movie TV program that I, that I hadn't seen myself that, that was really new to me was Battlestar Galactica. And I, I think I remember the, the old version of it, but but there's this newer version. Very different to the new version. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And, and so the idea that this was of any significance was so surprising right. to me, though I have heard a lot of people really enjoy the show. And you talk about that. You talk about a particular episode in, in the, the series. I wonder if you could talk about uh, this, this somewhat newer take and, and how it's coming at some, some of these ideas. Well, I think Battlestar Galactica, which, uh, which ran in its, its what was called the reimagined version, uh, from 2003 to 2009 is the the central, you know, pop culture, political crossover uh, text of our time. Um, and Battlestar Galactica was was brought to the screen by a guy who'd been involved in another one of the shows that I that I talked about, uh, Ronald D. Moore, who'd been a writer on Star Trek: The Next Generation and on uh, Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. 
and Ronald D. Moore had decided that Star Trek was not serious enough and it was not dark enough, and, and particularly in this, this post-9-11 world, uh, also this world with advancing robot technology, also this world with advancing cloning technology, that Star Trek was, was no longer really speaking to modern concerns. It was too idealistic. The storytelling was too episodic. Um, and he looked at Battlestar Galactica, which, as you say, uh, existed in the 1970s and was kind of this cheesy, stupid, uh, cartoonish type thing. And he said, yes, that was, that was a stupid show in the 70s, but its central premise, you have a few survivors fleeing essentially a, a, an apocalypse, you know, and fleeing for their lives. That central premise is really, really interesting and really dark, and it will resonate in a post-9-11 world in a way that it, that it didn't before. Um, and I think the, the specific episode that, you, that you're talking about that I, that I write about extensively in the, in the book is the first episode of season one. It's called 33. Um, and it's a, an episode that dramatizes uh, crises, political crises, foreign policy crises in just a superb way, a really, a really visceral way. And the premise of 33 is that the humans, uh, having just seen their uh, civilization wiped out, are running for their lives, and they're, they're escaping from their antagonists, the enemy, the Cylons, uh, and the Cylons keep reappearing every 33 minutes, and then the humans are able to get away, but they only get you know, this 32-minute uh, respite from this grinding existential crisis, and the crew can't sleep, they're, they're losing their minds, they're, uh, they're, they're, you know, people, people are dying because of human mistakes, the Cylons aren't even having to do anything, because after three or four days of this, Everyone is, is you know, uh, so sleep deprived that they, they can't, even, uh, can't even make the ship function. They keep blowing themselves up. Uh, and so I, thought, I think 33 is, is really a, a, an excellent testament and an excellent document of, of crises and the, the challenges that face top level decision makers during crises. You know, you have a president of Battlestar Galactica, a military commander in Battlestar Galactica, and they're having to make life and death calls in an instant and when they haven't slept, and when they can't really know all the information. Um, and what I do with, the, with that episode 33 is juxtapose it with the Cuban Missile Crisis, which took not 33 minutes, but 13 days. But a lot of the testimony from people who made decisions during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, talked a lot about the experience of the Cuban Missile Crisis. A lot of the same themes show through. You know, people are sleep-deprived. Uh, they're looking at the end of the world. They're trying to make life and death decisions. There's no one else to make the decisions but them. And then you get something that we forget about sometimes in political science, which is at the end of the day, policies and states and war and peace, it all comes down to human beings making decisions. And if the human beings get it wrong, then it's a big problem. Now, I thought the book was just so interesting, and, and having watched or, or read about many of these different um, movies and, and TV, it was such an interesting treatment of them. Is there something that you watch now that maybe you could recommend for, for how closely it aligns um, with some of the events of our, of our days? I think my, my strongest recommendation would be a, a show that um, just finished its second season on HBO, and it's called The Leftovers. It's not explicitly a, a, a political show, but I think it does tell us a lot about, um, it, it, it does, if you read into it a little bit more deeply, it does tell us a lot about politics, a lot about societies, um, a lot about some of the concerns that drive our everyday life. And what happens in The Leftovers is 2% of the, the population disappears. And you'd think, well, this is an odd show. This is an odd post-apocalypse show, because in a, in a post-apocalypse show, it's usually 
98% of the population is dead or wiped out, and there's only 2% left. But what happens if you reverse that? Well, a central problem that society faces in the leftovers is 2% of people disappear. There is then no tenable grand narrative for politics, for society, for life, for science that exists anymore. None of the religions can explain what's happened. There's absolutely no scientific explanation. And so how do micro-narratives, people's everyday lives, go on? And how do people change when the grand narratives are shattered? Science can't progress because there's no scientific explanation for this, this event that indisputably, uh, indisputably happened. And so it's, <clears throat> it's a, uh, I think, a sneakily horrifying show because you, you start to explore what, what really would happen if this inexplicable event took place. Um, and the second season, I thought the first season was brilliant, but everyone said it was, it was too dark and too boring. I guess I have specific tastes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the second season was sort of, uh, I, I also thought was fantastic and was, was widely acclaimed uh, across the board. So that's my, that's my recommendation, The Leftovers on HBO. Yeah, it's a great recommendation. Uh, also, uh, a great recommendation is uh, Stephen's uh, current book, Otherworldly Politics, the International Relations of Star Trek, Game of Thrones, and Battlestar Galactica, published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2015. Stephen, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much.